Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. This last episode, we touched on Dufour's 20th anniversary simplicity edition that was sold at auction, and an additional number of them to be sold to you know one country for each of the remaining pieces. As of the time that the episode actually went live two weeks ago, over 10,000 people had put their names on the list. <laughs> For, for fewer than 20 watches. Um, so they, they've actually re- revised the plan somewhat since then. And uh, they are going to continue forth with uh, the one per country. Um, that's just for approximately half of those pieces. Mm. And then for the, the final 10, it is actually going to be by lottery. Because I, I imagine that the 10,000 number has probably only gone up uh, in the last fortnight. So so your name's not gonna not likely to be pulled up then out of the 10, is that what you're saying? Well, I didn't bother submitting my name. Oh, you didn't I, put I, your I don't, name in? I don't have the, the, the liquid <laughs> assets needed to, to pick this particular piece up. I'm not surprised that they've had to change it up a little bit. It was commendable what they were doing with it, but I think it was just impractical considering the number of people that they were getting. Uh, I, I don't know if he thought that maybe they were only going to get one person from or <laughs> two people from certain countries, but yeah, the... They, that's just impractical. And 10,000, that's impressive. I, mm-hmm. I would not have expected 10,000 people to be able to, uh, you know, to be able to have the funds to do it and have the interest in doing it, right? Just just because you've got watch collectors who are regularly spending that kind of money on watches doesn't mean that they have any interest in independent watches. Mm-hmm. And so it really is a an interesting confluence of people who are interested in watches, interested in independent makers. And have the money to be able to buy something like this. So it was uh, 10,000 people is a lot more than I expected. Now, you and I both caught Seth Kennedy's in conversation talk with Isabel uh, this afternoon. What did you think about that? This is Isabel from Rupi Galais. And uh, she tends to interview a lot of uh, artists and, and niche artisans from around the world. And uh, she dropped in on, on the workshop of, of Seth Kennedy, an antiquarian horologist who we've, we've mentioned here on the show before. And in fact, we, we pointed out this this very Zoom call mm-hmm. that would be coming up in our, our last episode uh, for anyone who wanted to, to catch that. So I, I did indeed tune in. I, I wasn't able to catch every last moment of it. I just had it spinning in the background there and got a bit of a taste of, of my own medicine. And then I found <laughs> it a little hard to, to hear Seth at times. He was so soft-spoken, especially in contrast to, to Isabel, who was quite a bit more boisterous yes. and, and lively on camera there. Uh, but it was it was great. It was really nice to to see uh, inside his new space there and his new studio. Uh, he's recently moved into and, and is getting settled into, and uh, a, a treat to see uh, some of the the pieces that he, he's been working on as well. Although all a lot of them, I should say, probably all of them I have seen mm-hmm. before because uh, he has published them yeah. up, up online before. Uh, but it was neat to to hear firsthand and, and see him firsthand uh, live as he's describing a lot of them. Yeah, I've been to Seth's workshop, his his last workshop, uh, but this is a new shop that I haven't actually seen myself yet. And uh, I was hoping to have seen it this year, but of course, COVID and you know, no no ability to travel to the UK, which is uh, which is unfortunate. So hopefully, the uh, the next time I'm over in the UK, I'll be able to see it in person. But it was nice to get a, a quick tour of the shop and see what uh, what Seth's doing because he's always doing fascinating work. Mm-hmm. Just the nature of what he's doing, working on you know, individual pieces, nothing that he's doing is the same from day to day. Even if he's making, you know, seven cases or whatever in a year, none of those cases are going to be identical. They're all going to be for unique watches. So 
it's always nice to see what he's doing with that. And some of his uh, his designs are really great. The the one that he had with where the the watch itself could be flipped around in the pair case so that you could display the dial or the movement from the back was a great idea. I, I really like the look of that. That's, I think that's the most recent one that he's finished. And uh, that looks gorgeous. It's um, it's the sort of thing I'd love to be able to see up, up close. Yeah, I was really impressed by, by that one when he published photos of that just a, a mm-hmm. few weeks ago. Yeah. There. It's a really unique design, and it's something I can't say I recall ever seeing done before. No, I don't think I've ever seen anything like that, and it's it's uh, it's quite innovative. And it's it's nice because the the movement that was in there, that watch that was in there, I think he was saying that it was an orphaned movement that the uh, the owner had uh, had acquired at some point. and. Uh, you know this it's a gorgeous movement so it was you know, it's nice to be able to see that and i guess it's sort of like the reverso idea right like a lot of the reversos you can you can flip over and some of them you can actually see into the movement from the back so this is kind of a, a nod to that kind of a um, sort of a watch design so it was it was nice seeing that in a in a nice large 18th century pocket watch mm-hmm. it was interesting to see some of the, the questions coming through from from our audience there as well yeah one of the masks now why it's called a fob watch uh-huh. uh, at some point there and uh, I was going to chime in, but my hands were, were otherwise <laughs> occupied. Yeah. Uh, but that, the term fob is actually derived from a, an old German word for pocket. Hmm. So like okay. watch fobs and, mm-hmm. and all these sorts of things. It's, I, yeah, in some roundabout way over the, the centuries. Yeah. Uh, I think it's fupe or fupe hmm. in, in German. And it is ironic that, that what we call pocket watches today did not start out as pocket watches. No. They were portable clocks, right? They, and because at the time, they just, people didn't have pockets. And so they they couldn't have been called pocket watches at the time. And then eventually, as people, you know, develop pockets in their clothing, and uh, and in articles that they're they're carrying, they they eventually became known as pocket watches. But originally, they were just portable clocks. Well, as we touched on a, a number of shows back, they were actually called pomander watches when they first started in, out. Yeah, in so some be, cases, yeah. So before yeah. they they migrated to the the pocket, uh, yeah, they were they were pomander watches. The etymology of some of these words is interesting, uh, especially hundreds of years after they've. You know the the original reason for the for the words the way they are have have long sort of passed out of common usage. It's uh, so it is kind of interesting when we when we see these uh, and it's just you know just like wrist, we call them watches now. They were wristlets at one point. Mm-hmm. They were you know a lot of a lot of different ways of of wearing them and and that's changed the names that we've given them over the years. And some of them we we've sort of retconned to the to the earlier versions of them, even though that's not how they were originally referring to them. Mm-hmm. I don't know where they'll migrate to next. Maybe into a contact lens. Uh, I, I, they call them. <laughs> they call them uh, phones now, John. Oh, oh, oh I see. <laughs> so, having seen Seth's previous shop and, and now mm-hmm. had a, a virtual tour around his, his new digs, what, what did you think? It's uh, the shop that he's in is interesting. It's a sort of an artist collective which was created by a gentleman who I think he owns a, a fair bit of property in the area and. He had this large space that was unused, and so he cre- he basically modified this building to put multiple workshops in there, and he's encouraged artists who are doing fairly unique things uh, to to set up shop in in these um, in this building, and so there there are a number of really fascinating people that are in there. I know Seth has mentioned a couple of them to me, uh, like he's got a, a leather worker who's next door to him. And the idea was sort of a an artist collective of niche uh, skills, and uh, Seth was was I believe one of the the first people that was sort of brought in into that, and it's a it's a great experience because of course you know you you get access to a larger space than 
you might otherwise have available to you in you know in London. And so it's it's sort of nice to be able to work in that. It's certainly less cramped than his uh, his previous quarters were, and uh, it's it's nice to see. It's nice and bright, and it's it's got some you know sort of a good layout for what he's doing. And he had laid out quite nicely too. The island area mm-hmm. sort of in the middle there, and then various tools laid out all around the, the perimeter, and everything's set up and, and just ready to go. Not having to, to pull out a tool and, and set yeah. it all up and. And being able to work frictionlessly like that and just moving from, from one thing to the next. Oh, it certainly makes a big difference. And, you know, in some, like in his larger, his uh, larger lay that he has that he does um, some of his tool making in, you know, that was originally out in his, out in his shed in the backyard. Well, now he doesn't have to go out into the, into the shed in order to work on it. And even then the shed that it was in wasn't particularly large. Uh, the two of us in that shed basically consumed all of the free space that was in it. So this way he doesn't have to do that. He doesn't have to go back and forth between, you know, between the shop and the, and the shed in order to do that. And yeah, it makes a big difference when, when you have enough space, all of a sudden you have the ability to, to have a better workflow. Uh, that's something that I've certainly found here at the studio, having significantly more space than I had before makes a huge difference when it comes to making things. And yet there, there never seems to be, be quite enough space. There's never enough space. No, 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 absolutely not. Well, tools, uh, they, they expand to, you know, to sort of conform to the space that's available to them. No matter how much space you have, they just, they, it keeps expanding and expanding until you've run out of space again. So, yeah. <laughs> so you've uh, just passed the, the one year mark now here in, in your new studio. Yeah. So, so what are, what are some thoughts that you, you have reflecting back on, on this, this first year? It, it is a bit crazy. We took possession of the keys, I guess, uh, the 15th of November. 2019 and uh we're now into the first week of december of 2020 and it's uh it's crazy to think that we've been here for a year and in some ways it's amazing how little we've gotten accomplished and in other ways it's amazing just how much we've gotten accomplished Mm -hmm. in here certainly the uh you know that this building does not look anything like it did a year ago inside of here you know everything from the room that we're currently recording in this this uh you know this recording pod that we have to the actual shop floor itself and the gallery and everything none of it is is even remotely similar to what uh, what it looked like uh, you know where we're sitting right now there were racks and racks of uh, you know of tire storage and uh you know it was a, a horrible sort of unused space that was not really not really usable for anything and now it's a uh, sort of a nice comfortable space to work in. In fact, this is where I've got my my watchmaking studio upstairs and uh, you know, I spend a huge amount of time up here and it's it's nice and comfortable and it, anybody who was in here a year ago wouldn't wouldn't recognize it today. Mm-hmm. Uh so it it really is amazing in a lot of ways how much we've been able to get done and how much we've been able to transform this building into a tool that allows us to do the things that we want to do. Yeah, you certainly wouldn't have wanted to do any <laughs> Any form of watch work, no, up up here in this this space, the way that it looked a year ago. Yeah. I mean, there were ample <laughs> voids and, and gaps in the floor and, and creaky floorboards to to lose all manner of, of parts. You know, like who cares about losing a a watch part? You you could have lost an entire watch, <laughs> entire watch, in some of those cracks. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The the it was ridiculous. It was it certainly wasn't usable the way that it was. But mm. you know, we've we've turned it into a nice, comfortable space now, and it's it's great having the space to be able to do things our shop floor which used to be the garage space you know there used to be five car lifts in there and you know we tore most of those out and we 
we've put our heavy machinery in there, all of Rich's woodworking machinery in there from his CNC router to his, you know, planer and everything like that. That's all down in there. And that's where all of my heavy machinery is, right? That's that's where my large lathes are, my my mills and things like that, my pantograph, all of that's down in that area. And that's something where we have certainly run out of space in that area. If we really want to bring anything new into that space, we're going to have to figure out what we want to get rid of or dramatically change the layout of that of that space. So in, in some ways, that's that's a little frustrating, I, but it's it's also not unexpected. You know, that's, I think it's around 3,000 square feet in there. And consolidating both my shop and Rich's shop in there, as well as leaving enough open space to be able to do things like layout. Uh, you know, we did leave one of the car lifts in there. And that allows us to do things like, you know, I did an oil change on my car on the weekend, right? Which is rather nice to be able to do. We're now deep in the throes of, of our uh, our winter. And, you know, I'm able to to swap out the tires on my car easily in here. And so that's that's nice. But we've also got that space available to do fabrication. Mm-hmm. So that's where all of our welding setup is. And that's where, you know, our plasma cutter is and things like that. So, uh, you know, we've, we certainly have new tools and capabilities in this shop that we never had before. Uh, Rich's CNC router is now orders of magnitude larger than it used to be, right? He had a, I think it was set up as a four by four, uh, router in his basement before, and now it's six by 12 feet, right? It's, it's absolutely massive. We also have things like a forklift in here to help us be able to move really heavy machinery and, and do that kind of, you know, heavy lifting things that, you know, we've, we've got stuff now at a scale where moving it around is dangerous mm-hmm. if you're not doing it properly. So having, you know, having those tools around, they're really nice to haves and they, but they do take up space and that's, um, you know, so we, we have certainly run out of space in, in that main shop area. Yeah. For the, the new CNC machine you, you just finished, mm-hmm. new, new gang tool CNC machine. I would, I would love to know how you, <laughs> how you would have gotten the, the iron top for the table that that machine is mounted on, how you would have gotten that onto the table without the forklift. Brute force and ignorance, John. That's, that's <laughs> how I move everything in this place. So the, the CNC lathe that I'm building right now, this is a, a custom CNC lathe I've, I've designed and built a number of years ago, as I've mentioned before. It's based off of a design that Dan Simons showed me years ago that he had created for, for turning pens. So I've taken that idea and I've sort of run with it. It's a gang tool lathe. And my original uh, design that was similar to this was on mounted on a, a half-inch sheet of aluminum, which I thought was going to be fine and uh, wasn't really sturdy enough. I could watch the uh, that half-inch sheet of aluminum turn into a, a Pringle every time the uh, you know the drilling cycles would go into stainless steel or something. So I decided to mount it onto a large cast iron surface plate. So it's a it's like a forty. I want to say it's like a forty by thirty-two inch surface plate, cast iron. It weighs about six or seven hundred pounds, I think, somewhere around there. And then it's mounted on a steel table that I welded up for it. Yeah, I've I moved that. I mean, that was in my shop at home beforehand, so I had moved that surface plate around a number of times on my own. And uh, honestly, leverage leverage is your friend. You, it's amazing how much you can move with a with a good lever and and some wood. Right, you block out. Uh, you know, you use a blocks of wood to to lift things up or to keep them up once you've lifted them 
And uh, it, it truly is amazing how much you can move by yourself with just uh, with just the right lever and and uh, a few accessories to help you out. Yeah, I recall you had put some eye bolts in there to help you move it around yeah. your, your old shop, but you didn't actually have it mounted on a, a table in the old shop. You were no, just I hadn't. Moving it to get it out of the way. I hadn't yeah. actually moved it, mounted it on a table yet. And you're right, that, that but it, it's still something that I'd had to move around mm. a number of times, and I had to get it into the shop and everything. So. Mm. Um, you know, when I bought it, it was easy. They, they loaded it under my trailer with a, with a forklift at the shop. And then I got home and you're like, how am I moving this? <laughs> um, anyways, uh, honestly, it's a lot of, a lot of very simple techniques that, uh, that allow you to, to move heavy things around a shop safely. Uh, but you do have to think about it and you have to be intentional about how you do it and not just, uh, not just try and lift things up and, and move it around. Yeah, I imagine you would have needed a, a very well reinforced sixteen foot lever to lift that beast up onto that table. <laughs> no, no, actually, you can do it with with a lot less. Like that that Acer F five, which weighs significantly more than that. I mean, I moved that thing around with a a lever that was maybe three feet long. It's it's amazing what you can do with uh, with leverage in the right place. Now that must have had like some sort of hydraulic assistance. No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. How, I mean, but you didn't lift the Sierra 5 up onto a, a table you had welded together. No, but I still, I, I lifted it up uh, several inches mm-hmm. um, to get it off the blocking that was there. I mean, at that point, it's it's academic how far you're moving it. It, it. The trick is that you need to be able to lift it. Once you can lift it, how far you're lifting it is is unimportant, right? That just takes more blocking to, to lift it up. That's all you're doing. Um, you know, you just use blocks of wood to keep lifting okay. it higher and higher. Right? I read you now. Okay. So, yeah, yeah three, okay. Three foot lever and a bunch of blocks. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Just throw a few blocks at it. <laughs> I still would have loved to to watch you you do that. Oh, it would have cheating been. Cheating with the forklift. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yes, I, I have cheated with a forklift and, and I also use the, uh, the pallet jack to be able to move it around now that it's, it's on the, uh, the table, but you're right. It is, um, it is a kind of cheating basically doing it the way that I have done it. So imagine 2020 is not shaped up to be the way anyone imagined it would first yeah. going into this year. Uh, so how how's that been for, for you? Well, I think the biggest thing from, from this point of view, from the shop and the studio that we're in, the biggest thing that that has affected is the ability to have people here and be able to put on events here. Uh, one of the spaces that we have here is a nice gallery space. It's the old showroom that they had. This was a uh, for people who haven't listened to some of the, the past episodes, this building was a garage and in its last iteration, a tire center. So people were there, they were selling various tires and, and fitting tires onto, onto vehicles here. And that is, you know, again, it's, a, it's around a 3000 square foot space, which is a large open room with glass windows on two sides. And we ripped out a, there was a small office at the back and there was a customer service counter that was there. And so we ripped all that out and we've turned it into a nice large open gallery. We've got a kitchen in there. Uh, we've got a projector in there. You and I were watching the uh, SpaceX SN8 uh, launch uh, earlier when they, uh, they, if you haven't watched it yet, the uh, spoiler alert, it blew up when it hit the pad. It sounds like they ran out of fuel. But anyway, quite a thing to witness on a twenty-four foot screen. Yeah, something like that, and that's the thing. We've you know we've got a huge projector on the wall, right? So we can actually see big stuff on there. We've got massive speakers in there, so we can actually you know blast things out if we want to. And oftentimes it's just you know it's our living room. We we have some couches in there. We have lunch in there. Uh, we have a pool table in there. Things like that, and that's great for us. But we wanted to be able to use that space as a gallery space as well. So we you know I know a lot of 
people in in the city who are artists. Uh, we wanted to be able to pro- provide a space where, uh, you know, the right artists could come in and be able to show off their their work and be able to do that in a in a space where they weren't being charged exorbitant calorie fees. And, um, you know, they could set up and do things that they may not be allowed to do in other spaces. Uh, and that includes the stuff that we want to do, right? Uh, both Rich and I have ideas for uh, display pieces that are maybe larger than might be comfortable to put in another gallery. Uh, or we want to have it on permanent display. And and so that gallery space is something that we can use for a lot of different things. Uh, we can also use it for events and talks and things like that and be able to live stream lectures and and whatever you know whatever comes up like there's you know there are a lot of things that we could do with that space which we just haven't been able to do because we can't have gatherings of people and that's something that we're really missing out on that would have changed the feel of this space dramatically and and that's i think that's the the biggest loss that we've had in this space because of 2020 Mm. i think as a a result of that i don't know if this would have all come about the same way anyway for you, but uh, in some way there's been a, a lot more virtual gathering taking place yeah. in 2020 due to COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And we touched on on Video Gear a little bit back when uh, we recorded that uh, time for a, a pint virtual get-together with, with Matt and Chris. Uh, but your your setup <laughs> has evolved significantly yeah. since then. <laughs> yeah, I've... I've wanted to document what I'm doing with video for a long time. And I should have started this years ago. And of course, you know, perfection is the enemy of good enough. And it's, it's meant that I'm years behind in where I should be in terms of getting, getting video content out there. But uh, it's something that I'm, I'm focusing on more and more. Uh, this is something that, as you and I have worked on bits and pieces of Project Minotaur, I've I've filmed little bits of it. I've also filmed parts of that um, that journey on my own um, in more detail after you know when I've had when I've been here on my own, and it's something that I I want to do more of. I also think that the you know now that the world is getting more and more used to doing video conferencing and virtual events, things like the the virtual time for a pint. I think that there is going to be more interest in seeing what people in different parts of the world are doing through video and whether it's through just a regular live stream where I'm there by myself or whether it's it's something where there's somebody who's interviewing me. And so I wanted to make sure that no matter what it was that I was doing, whether it's a YouTube video, whether it's an Instagram video, whether it's a time for a pint, I wanted to be able to have a better video setup than the average person does so that it looks good and people, you know, people can actually see what I'm doing. And it's not just, uh, you know, it's not just my, you know, my bedroom or whatever that I'm shooting from. It's great that people are doing that. And I'm, and I certainly don't want to discourage anybody from, from showing what they're doing on video just because they don't have a perfect setup. But I wanted to make sure that what I'm documenting for myself is, is excellent. And it's something that I've, I came, I've come to realize over the last three years with you and I recording like this, that having this record of what it is that we're doing is so important. You know, 20 years ago, people were starting to blog and that's how a lot of people were, were documenting their journey and whatever they were doing and putting it out into the world. And, you know, podcasting has obviously been popular for, for a decade or more. 
and you know it was very easy to get this out here and document what what we're doing through spoken word but that's not always appropriate both blogs and podcasts are great for certain things but they're not good for showing off other things and that's where a video really comes in and frankly there's no good reason today with the smartphones that we have and you know the cameras that are out there there's no good reason not to document what it is that we're doing you know we can publish for free easily and so i'm trying to i'm trying to do that more and i and i want to get that get that out in the world yeah and as we've both articulated a number of times here in the past uh, this isn't an, an area that is as well covered in video form mm-hmm. as it ought to be yeah and it is an area and, and an art that very much needs to be documented yes. in video because there are things that you simply cannot convey through words and, and pictures alone sure. and certainly not through spoken word <laughs> no. uh, in, in anywhere near the same level of fidelity yeah. as you can with video. And we've both lamented that we we really wish that the Time Eon Alliance would, would publish some of these videos that, mm-hmm. that they've spoken of. But we've also recognized that... It's a huge amount of work. Yeah, absolutely. It is a great medium. Video is a great medium for showing off some of these things. And as we've talked about, you know, obviously learning in person is the ideal way of doing it, right? Being sitting in front of somebody who's been doing this for years is the perfect way of doing it. When I went over to the BHI, you know, I'd already played with with servicing watches and I had already done a lot of a lot of work disassembling watches and and doing things to them but you know standing in front of John Murphy while he's manipulating parts with his tweezers and you see somebody who's been doing this for 30 years and you see the confidence that he has when he's working with these delicate parts and the way that he's intentionally manipulating them and the way that, you know, just watching watching somebody put a, you know, a balance back into a watch for the first time, you, you know, you, you can't really convey in, you know, written word or, or spoken word what it is that they're doing as they're doing that. And you just see, you know, you watch him as he's putting it in and he gives that little twist, you know, just to sort of set the, set the balance right and then put it back in. And those are things that you just never you'll never notice unless you're you're either right there or you've got good video of what it is that they're doing and and that's so valuable but unfortunately we can't all be in front of masters you know in person all the time right it's just not practical there aren't enough of them they're scattered around the world there are too many of us we're scattered around the world and it's just not something just not practical to get us all in the same room mm-hmm. so this is a nice way of bridging that gap a little bit and instead of us needing to cover the basics when we're in a room with somebody like that, you know, maybe now instead of instead of that, we can say, all right, watch these videos. You know, watch Christian's videos, for instance. He's got great videos on servicing, you know, 6497 up on learnwatchmaking.com. Well, now that you know how to do that and you've seen, you know, you've seen the basics of doing that, now when you go and you you take a class with Christian or you take a class with John Murphy, you're going to be able to ask more interesting questions. You're going to be able to um, to get a lot more out of it because you've already covered the basics thanks to those those higher quality videos. Yeah, just on that singular note of installing the, the balance and, and the balance cock and that, that slight twist of the wrist, um, that becomes like even more important when you're working on a, a coaxial watch, the way in which you do that and, and the mm-hmm. manner in which that is done. And I don't know of a video of, George Daniels 
installing or showing how to install yeah. uh, the balance cock and the bridge on one of his coaxial watches. Yeah. I mean, if someone does know a video out there, please send it our way. I'd, I'd love to see it. Uh, but that is, is something that it is actually very easy to, to mess up. I, thankfully, mm-hmm. I have not done this. I've had proper <laughs> training on, on coaxial servicing it in those timepieces. Uh, but I, I can't say with certainty whether I would have reinstalled that cock properly mm-hmm. and, and gotten the balance in just right had I not had an expert looking over my shoulder the first time that I did that. Sure. Absolutely. And and those are things that you can't expect somebody with, with very little watch experience to go into a course like that about the coaxial and be able to get a meaningful amount out of it. But you went into that course having already had years and years of experience working on watches with normal balances in them so that when you're sitting in front of an, uh, an expert in that particular watch, you're going to get the most out of it that you can. And that's kind of what I'm hoping with these videos that I'm putting up. You know, I'm, I'm certainly not trying to tell anybody that I'm a master at anything that I do. I'm, you know, I'm better than the average Joe at it, but I'm not, I'm not a master at any of this stuff. But hopefully people will learn enough of the basics of what I'm doing that when they do, you know, they do figure out, hey, I'm actually interested enough in this that I'm going to hunt down someone who is a master at this art. Then when they get to that point, they'll be able to say, oh, yeah, I've seen somebody do that. And I've learned from somebody who knows who knows more about it than I do. And now they're sitting down in front of a master and they can say, all right, we don't have to talk about the first, you know, 80% of this. Let's just talk about the last 20%. And that's where hopefully these videos will help people. Mm-hmm. And there's this old proverb that as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Mm. And I, I can think of a number of different examples and in, in different areas where, where this sort of um, back and forth dialogue through video has taken place and has brought about a renaissance or just a burgeoning of creativity and skill development over a very short period of time from different people all over the planet. Now, one of the first and easiest that, that comes to mind for me is just like breakdancing. There are actual talks that have, have been given on this subject and papers hmm. that have been written. This is an area that has been studied just about like the exponential increase and in, in skill and and tricks mm-hmm. that that these people are able to perform. I mean, the same thing happened with skateboarding, with the introduction of of camcorders back sure. back in the eighties. Uh, skateboarding went through the, an incredible period of, of creativity, mm-hmm. and it's because normal, regular, everyday people were able to to pick up a tool and capture something, and then have that distributed, yeah. and that leverage for distribution that that lever is effectively unlimited for anyone sure. in this day and age with things like YouTube and Instagram and, sure. and Vimeo and the like. Yeah. When one of the people we've spoken about a number of times on the show is uh, Dean DK out of uh, Sydney, Australia. He's uh, an amateur watchmaker. He's building his own version of a 6497. And he, he took most of this year off. So he hasn't published a lot of videos this year. But he popped up again last week and he started putting out videos again. And one of the one of the interesting things he did was um, he did a live stream last week that I actually caught a little bit of where he was doing some design work in Fusion 360. And he doesn't have a lot of experience with Fusion and he was struggling with, with one of the things that was in there. And so, you know, even though I was chatting with him a little bit in the uh, the live stream, because of the delay in the live stream, it's a little bit frustrating trying to deal with that. So, you know what, I knocked together a 15-minute video for him showing him a couple of key techniques 
Infusion 360 that would be helpful specifically for him in working on a watch movement. They're the sorts of things that you can pick up watching any one of a hundred tutorials on design in Fusion 360. But sometimes it's nice to have somebody who's just like they're doing the same kind of work that you're doing and they can show you, look, these are the five techniques that you want to know in Fusion 360 and this will get you, you know, significantly further ahead than if you, you know, if you sit there struggling along and and trying to figure it out. So yeah, it's it's great to be able to do that and be able to send Dean this, this custom video that says, hey, this is this is what you should be looking at. And hopefully that's something that he benefits from enough that he's then able to continue doing that work and somebody else will learn from the tips that I've given him that he's now passing on to somebody else. Mm. And that's where the video thing is so great and it's so powerful to be able to show somebody. You know, I can I can actually show him the techniques on screen instead of having to try and explain it to him in text and you know, with a two and a half minute delay. I think one of the most poignant instances of this that, that I've seen captured from a live stream uh, was with Julia Minamata. Uh, so it's relayed by uh, Cable Sasser, mm. uh, but she is a graphic artist. She makes these 8-bit style assets for, for video games and, and she right. does it in Photoshop. Nice. And she's been doing this for years in Photoshop. One thing that is a default setting in Photoshop is when you use the the eraser tool, mm-hmm. if you're not precisely 100% lined up over a pixel, it will anti-alias right. your, your eraser mark. So it will, you know, take out 80% uh, from, from one pixel and, and maybe another 10% from an adjoining pixel and another 10% from an adjoining pixel. Maybe. Which is really frustrating when you're trying to be precise. Exactly. Yeah. And she lamented about this while doing yeah. a live stream, showing people her workflow and her process. And someone piped up and said, well, if you just like go and, and like this setting here <laughs> in this dialogue, yeah. you can change it. So it will just do it on the pixel that has the most coverage of your, mm-hmm. your cursor at that point. And there are so many other tools in, in Photoshop that aren't set up that way where you can go from sort of fuzzy mm-hmm. approach to a pixel perfect approach. And and she had had no idea that this yeah. feature existed. And she literally breaks down in tears in this live stream. Yeah. Because this this has such an impact on what an she's impact doing. on her workflow, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And she might have gone on years longer. She might never have, have learned, learned that, that sure. if not for this live stream and putting herself out there and, yeah. and showing her work to the world and her process to the world. And then someone can come along and say, you know, you're going to find out a lot easier if you just <laughs> do this. Like, check this one little box off. Well, you and I, you and I had a, a bit of this when we were looking at one of my dial designs, and I, I had pulled up the dial design in Illustrator, and I was, you know, I had gone off and studiously built all of these guidelines out with manual lines that I had drawn, and you know, Illustrator has guidelines, but I'm I've been used to them from the Photoshop world, where the guidelines that you get are vertical and horizontal, and that's it, and then. You said to me, well, why don't you just change the angle on the guidelines? And I'm like, you can't do that because I was used to Photoshop where you can't do that. Mm. And yet here you are in Illustrator and it's like, yeah. all of a sudden I've got guidelines that are set up for each of the hour markers on my watch dial and it makes my life so much easier. And it's little things like that that, that you only pick up through that dialogue and you know, this, as you say, this live stream thing is, is a way of doing that. 
So I'm thinking at some point or another, I'm actually going to start doing live streams. I have no idea how many people are going to tune in. Maybe nobody will. I do find that trying to go back to a live stream later on is often pretty boring because they're often, you know, three hours of, of stuff and it's it's not particularly exciting. You, I think the taking that video and then editing it down to, uh, you know, sort of a relevant five or ten minutes is worthwhile doing afterwards. But I think it would be interesting to sort of get a live stream going and see who shows up and see who talks about stuff and, and say, oh, you know, who who's going to actually show up and tell me, hey, this there's a better way of doing this. But it only takes one person. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So all that to say, yes, I, I've been spending a lot of time and energy thinking about my camera setup in here. Uh, I'm thinking about adding a second camera so that I can do that. I've got a, a little video switcher, which will allow me to actually have a few different views of what's going on and what I'm doing and uh, be able to be able to show different views of, of what's happening on my bench. And then... I'll be able to pull up that setup and move it down into the shop where I've got my engine turning equipment and be able to show people, hey, this is what I'm doing with engine turning and they can actually see it live as I'm as I'm doing it. Although a live stream may be a little too distracting for engine turning, we'll have to see. It may be one of those things where it's like, okay, I'm going to be engine turning. I'm going to completely ignore you because if I try and pay attention to you, I'm going to screw up my engine turning. So uh, we'll see we'll see how it works out. But certainly for the the stuff that I'm doing here at the Watchmakers Bench, I think I could pull off doing a live stream with that do you mind if we, we dive into the weeds a little bit here no, not at all. Th- this is this has changed dramatically since since re- you recorded that that time for a pint yeah. episode back in the summer you have literally built for yourself a, a one-man film crew that can follow <laughs> you around and, and pick up your voice yeah wherever you are and, and prompt you as to, to what you should be saying like it is quite incredible what you have built over the span of just a few months I've seen a few different people setups over the years. There are a bunch of YouTubers who have talked about this. You know, everybody talks about it's not the gear, it's the story, it's the, you know, it's what you're doing, it's what you're talking about. Absolutely. If you don't have an interesting story, then it doesn't really matter what gear you have. But sometimes the gear actually makes a difference. And it doesn't have to be crazy expensive stuff. Uh, A lot of the what I've got going on in here now is not particularly expensive gear. But it's just using it in the right way. So a few people over the years have shown off sort of these custom studio rigs where it's on a little stand that they can roll around their their you know their studio or their house or wherever it is, and they've got everything that they need in place. They've got a light on there. They've got a camera. They've got you know say an iPad or a computer or something to show what they're what they're doing or what they're talking about their notes, and they've you know they've got all these different setups for doing that. And so I decided to extrapolate from, you know, sort of three or four different setups that I've seen. And I've modified some of the gear that I've got in order to to handle that a little better. So one of the things that I've lamented over the years is having very boring static shots of what I'm doing. You know, it's, it's at some point it, it doesn't, it's not really all that interesting if you're always seeing the exact same shot of the work that you're doing. And it's it's not moving. And that's really difficult to change if you're there by yourself. You don't have a camera operator to help you out. And so it's difficult to add some dynamic movement to your video shots uh, when you're you're doing this by yourself. So uh, I've recently picked up a small slider. And, you know, that's great because now all of a sudden I've got motion, you know, I've got, let's say, eight inches of travel of motion left to right of my camera and all of a sudden hey that 
you know, that adds a little bit more interest and a little bit more curiosity to what's going on. But the problem there is that it doesn't stay looking at the thing that I want to look at, right? If I'm looking at, let's say, the headstock of my lathe, I want the headstock of my lathe to be in the center of the shot all the time that it's actually, you know, even though the the camera's moving a little bit. Um, So I've managed to rig up my my DJI gimbal. This active track feature will allow you to follow an object in frame and keep track of where it is. And so the gimbal will then will then track it. And so now as the camera's moving back and forth on the slider, the gimbal's on top of it and it can then track the object that I'm I've pulled it to. So I can keep the drill press in the center of frame or the lathe or whatever it happens to be. But now I'm getting a little bit of motion going. And so it's a, it's a little bit more interesting than what, you know, than what I was shooting before. Uh, so little things like that make a big difference when you're, when you're working and you're shooting stuff. And a, a more recent acquisition is actually going to unlock your ability to actually look people in the eye when you're on a <laughs> Zoom call. Something that drives me crazy is when I'm talking to people on, on video calls is not, not actually looking at them and it doesn't look like I'm looking at them. It looks like I'm looking off to the left or whatever. And we've, we've all seen this and we've gotten used to it. Um, cameras are in the worst possible spot on phones and on iPads and laptops and things like that for looking interesting and interested on, on these calls. There's been a, a real renaissance of inexpensive video tools for YouTube creators over the last couple of years. It's one of the biggest benefits I think that, that we've seen, uh, is sort of a democratization of a lot of tools for creators who don't have huge amounts of money to, to do these setups. And one of them is with teleprompters, you know, 10 years ago, a teleprompter, if you didn't make it yourself, it would have been a very expensive thing to be able to, to buy. Uh, because they would have all been set up for professional studios. But now there are a lot of inexpensive teleprompters that are designed to work with things like iPads. You can get teleprompter software for your iPad and and then you just set it up in a little, a sort of a little fold-up teleprompter that you can put your iPad on, put the camera behind it. And now all of a sudden you've got access to your notes or your script or whatever it is that you're doing uh, with this with this teleprompter. So I decided to take it a, a little step further, and instead of just having the iPad there sitting on the on there to, to be able to read off of, I've put a small field monitor for a camera on there. So it's a 9-inch field monitor, and they're typically used to be able to see better what you're shooting when you're actually out in the field. So you can, instead of just looking at the little viewfinder on the back of your camera, you can see on a larger screen what you're actually shooting and what you're seeing. And so I've put one there. And I've attached an HDMI switcher to it. So I can actually put multiple sources plugged into this, this field monitor. So one of the field, you know, one of the sources can be my teleprompter software. Another one can be the camera that I'm looking into. So now all of a sudden I know if something is in frame when I'm showing something to the camera, I don't have to wonder, is this actually in frame? Is it in focus or anything like that? I can see it while I'm still looking at the camera because I'm seeing an image of me as I'm working with it. Uh, and then the other thing I can do is now I can actually project to my WebEx call or my GoToMeeting video call uh, or my FaceTime call. I can have the image of that, the person that I'm speaking to, projected onto the teleprompter in front of me. And now I'm looking them in the eye. And it just so happens that right behind their eye is the lens of my camera. So 
it now looks like I'm actually looking at them and I'm engaged with what they're doing and saying. And it's a little bit, a little bit more appealing. It's a, it's slightly nicer as I'm talking to them. And this will give me the option to, to do a lot of that where I can actually flip around between different video sources and be able to still look at the camera and see what I want to see while I'm, while I'm doing that. And another thing that's changed as well for you is your, your mic setup. I noticed a Mm -hmm. little something new dangling down from the ceiling. Yeah, I've I've had that mic for a while actually, and I've just never really taken advantage of it. I've I've always seen the lapel mic. Yeah, the lapel mics are horrible. They they pick up. So the okay, we're gonna get a little nerdy about audio here. Uh, different microphones have different pickup patterns in order to pick up sound in different ways. So the microphones that you and I are speaking in, into now are geared to be picking up right in front of them, and they tend to reject sound from behind them or from the sides. So the idea is that you're speaking directly into the microphone, but really this microphone needs to be a few inches in front of your face, and you don't want it to be much further than that. Uh, Lapel mics are really great because they can be on your, you know, basically on your chest, and they will pick up your voice. But the problem is they're sort of trying to pick up everything all around them, and so they also pick up things like the sound of the heater that's on the other side of the room, or the the road noise or whatever. So they're great in a lot of ways, but they pick up too much. Uh, so the answer to that is the shotgun mic. Uh, so it's a very, very directional microphone that you basically mount so that it's just out of the frame of your, your camera shot. And it's pointed down at the chest of the talent who's speaking. And it will then pick up the sound coming from them. If you've seen video of um, people on set on a on a movie set or whatever, you'll see, you know, somebody standing off to the side, and they've got a long boom pole, and they've got a set of headphones on, and there's a they're holding a microphone up above the the actors, and they're pointing it down at them. That's exactly what's going on here. It's just I don't have somebody standing there with a pole holding it, so mine's clamped to the ceiling, and I can move it around and put it into the position so that I can get slightly better quality audio than I would be getting from just a lapel mic. Yeah, so your boom operator is the ceiling. Yeah, exactly. That's right. So how long will it be before you, you tie that into a Ronin 2 as well and have that <laughs> on active track following you around? Uh, hopefully never. I don't, think I've, <laughs> I don't think I need to do that for for the audio. I, you know, that's that's not too bad. I can I can stand in one spot and be able to get that get the audio staying pretty good from that from that one location certainly the new ronin gimbal that's out is uh, is really appealing because they've got a new uh a new lidar sensor that's in it so this lidar sensor will actually track how far away the object is that it's that it's focused on and it will actually change the focus of your camera based on that so if you don't have autofocus on your camera like my you know my uh, cameras in the shop don't actually have autofocus on them so this would be a way of adding that too so there's there's a couple of things in the new new gimbals that are they're kind of appealing but that that'll be i think a i think a 2021 purchase i don't think i'll be uh be doing that just yet yeah i was really impressed by that gimbal when i, I saw a review of it and the fact that you could bust out some vintage glass yeah and, and basically make it as good as if not better than, than some of the most state-of-the-art autofocus systems mm-hmm. in in cameras as uh, in cinema cameras yeah. at that it is truly really remarkable 
Yeah, the the cameras that I'm shooting with are cinema cameras. They've got single autofocus, so you can press the button once and it'll autofocus. And that's great for doing your initial focus setup. But if you move at all, it's not going to continue tracking you. And that's fine. There are a lot of other advantages that these cameras bring, and I'm willing to give up on the autofocus because of that. Um, but it would be nice to have autofocus. Mm. And some of my lenses are, you know, they're old enough that they don't have autofocus capabilities with this particular camera, or they may have poor autofocus capabilities. And so that's that's one of the things that this um, this setup can actually bring to you is a really, really interesting set of autofocus capabilities that you just couldn't get otherwise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they work incredibly well in low light yeah. as well. Yeah, because it's using a, a, an infrared signal from the LiDAR, it can continue focusing in absolute blackness, which is really fascinating to me because most, um, in fact, as far as I know, all autofocus systems that are on modern cameras are using some kind of either contrast or phase detect autofocus and or a combination of the two. So this is a really interesting way of doing it where you're not using the light that's actually hitting the camera sensor. You're using a whole other set of light that is is being emitted from this LiDAR sensor and it's non-visible. So you're going to get, you know, you don't have to see it. You don't have to, uh, you know, you're not going to capture that on film. So it's, it is interesting to see how it's working and, and it's really cool to see some of the things that people are doing with it. I was largely being facetious there, talking about putting the boom arm for your, your shotgun mic into a, a Ronin too. <laughs> but it, it is really nice to have the, the boom arm cantilever down from the, the ceiling. It's, it's up out of the way. You don't even notice it's there when you're mm-hmm. working on the lathe. And you also don't have to worry about cords coming out of you Absolutely. or dangling all over the place. I mean, the last thing you want is any sort of yeah. excess bit that that can get caught while you're you're working on a, a machine like that. So it really is a, a nice setup you've got going on there. Yeah, there's a few advantages. Obviously, it gets it out of the way. It gets it off the floor. Uh, I don't get vibrations mm-hmm. through it, uh, through the floor, like I would if it was if it was on a stand. It's another stand that I don't have to trip over. All those things. Same thing, my light. Uh, I've got a... Um, I've got a light that's mounted to the ceiling as well. Actually, I've got a few lights that are mounted to the ceiling, which allow me to, again, get lighting in the place that I need it to be without needing to worry about tripping over a C-stand or, you know, a lighting stand of some sort or whatever. I I do have a little bit of extra space in this in this watchmaking area, but it's not an infinite amount of space. And I want to be able to, to shoot in the space that I'm in. And so this is, this is great. It, it really is opening up a, a lot of options for me. And one of the things we've talked about before is that if you want to make something like this, you want to do it regularly, it needs to be easy. You need to remove as much friction as possible. And so now it's it's all just set up permanently. I don't have to tear it down. You know, maybe if I want to shoot something down in the shop, I'll, I'll grab some some specific bits of gear and I'll bring that down to the shop with me, specifically camera lenses, things like that. But I don't have to, you know, pull everything out of a closet, set it all up you know, just to do a shot and then tear it all down again because I don't have the room to keep it there. It's it's nice to have all this set up and, and working all the time. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think that the only way you, you might be able to, to make it better on the camera front is to set up one of those multi-axis camera systems that can go pretty much anywhere <laughs> in the space it wants to while it's being tethered to the roof that, that I sent you a couple months back. I, I have seen a couple of guys who have set up uh, these industrial robots that are used for doing automation in um, in uh, machine shops, and uh, they've actually set up cameras on these these uh, industrial robots, which is 
utterly ridiculous. It, it takes my gimbal idea and it, you know, adds two orders of magnitude to the cost of it. But it's, uh, it is fun to see what people are doing with some of these things when, when you get to an extreme. And, uh, and as you say, that, that guy who did make the, uh, the custom, basically the custom CNC robot for doing filming was just ridiculous. Uh, and you know, Hey, maybe, maybe that's where I, I go at some point. Rich and I have enough CNC bits and servos and CNC controllers sitting around the shop that aren't being used for anything that we could probably knock something together. Speaking of those nice Tony Stark glamour shots of you working away <laughs> in, in your studio. Exactly. Now, on the, the actual tools front, mm-hmm. you've made a number of, of upgrades and acquisitions over the course of 2020 as well. One of the nice things about having the space that we've got is that we've been able to add more tools that we haven't been able to have in the past. Uh, you know, I mentioned, obviously, Rich's CNC router, being able to get it up to a size where now we can, you know, we can leave a full four by eight sheet of material on the machine in place and then set up another job beside it. It's, it's ridiculous being able to do it, you know, it's, but it's, it's nice having that, that option. I've been able to add a fiber laser to the shop this year, which has been a huge advantage. I haven't really put it through its paces yet and I haven't, I haven't used it nearly as much as, as I probably should, but that's, that adds a huge amount of capability to the shop that I don't, you know, I didn't have otherwise. Uh, pad printer, again, I haven't really had a chance to do much pad printing yet, but it's there and I've got the space to be able to use it and set it up and everything. Um, you know, my form labs printer, all of these things. It's nice to have all of these tools available. They're all sitting there ready to go. And when I need to experiment with something, I don't have to worry about dragging it out of a, out of storage and setting it up and taking something else out of the way. It's, uh, it's been really nice for that. And then probably the, the most significant in terms of what I've been using on a regular basis is that ACR F5 that we picked up. That's been such a dream to have in the, in the shop. I've had reasonable sized mills in the past. Uh, I've got a hardened mill that I like. It's a little tool room mill, uh, very, very accurate, but it, it has a very restrictive work envelope. The F5 is such a dream to work on just because of the, the extra space that it, that it has. So with making this, you know, these upgrades and additions to the CNC lathe that I'm working on, being able to go over to the F5 and be able to work on all of the plates that I need to work on, no matter how large they are, that's been great. Uh, so yeah, having the space for that, we, we never would have been able to do that if we were still working out of our basements and garages, right? Rich and I just didn't have the space before to be able to do that. And having, having the space to be able to do that has just been, has been incredible. So I, you know, I talk to people about the fact that this shop is a tool and it really is. This, this studio is, is easily the most important tool that I have. And I could not be doing the things that I do today with the ease that I am today without this tool. You know, there's certainly been delays with some of the things that, that I've been working on. You know, we've talked about delays with some of my own watches with, uh, you know, suppliers being delayed and things like that. And obviously COVID has, has really put a, you know, massive breaks on some of my projects from, from various points of view. But this, this studio tool that I have will allow me to ramp back up to doing whatever it is that I need to do very, very quickly. I need to do some casting next week. Well, I don't have to worry about making space for casting. I've already got a space set up for doing all of that, right? And it doesn't impinge on my machining space. 
and it's not going to be a problem for my, you know, jeweler's bench. All of those things before were problematic. And, if, you know, if I needed to to do some casting, then I would have to move things out of the way to do that. I, I just don't have to worry about that anymore. So um, certainly this this tool is the most important thing that I have right now. And um, in terms of, of making my life better for actually making things. And so 21 is going to be much better for me in terms of being able to actually get things out the door and being able to make things just because now we've we've sort of finished the work on the shop for the most part. Now it's ready to go and we can really start putting it through its paces. Mm-hmm. And there are a number of other tools, of course, that we've touched on over the course of this past year, things like the plasma cutter mm-hmm. and the saw stop. And then I've added a number of, of other tools in, in addition to those as well, things yep. like a, a new surface grinder mm-hmm. and uh, lots of little handy tools like a, a, a drill press you can yeah. drag around anywhere you want and, and <laughs> drop down on a table and have it magnetically affix to it. Yeah. And uh, you know, bandsaw for cutting metal, another metal cutting saw, nice chopping blocks and grinders, all manner of, of different tools that, that you guys have added. We've also had a number of, of small hand tools that are, are handy for watchmaking in in particular yeah we've i've added a bunch of little watchmaking tools over the year that have been great that i haven't had again i just haven't had the space for right um everything from my um you know my regless for you know a little as a little drill jig you know i've now been adding things like i was just showing you earlier before we were on air uh i've just got a, a hammer hand piece for being able to do texture work on pieces so now i can start to experiment with that kind of thing you know, the precision camera and drill press that I've got now, all of those are things that, that are really making a big difference in terms of being able to to do watch work. Uh, the operating tool that we've been using for doing some of our layout work on this um, on this new watch, uh, all these things have have, uh, have been a real boon to uh, to some of the work that I'm doing. Aside from the, the regulars, which we've already touched on, mm-hmm. uh, I have to say the, the Cameron drill press is a, a tool I've very much impressed by the the precision oh yeah on and this is a, a company i didn't know existed most watchmakers drills or drills that are made specifically for watchmakers are exorbitantly yeah. expensive and uh you know bergeon kind of has the, the stranglehold on the mm. the supply side of things there uh, but cameron's a, a little family-run operation down in california the precision on these is, is rock solid yeah. and, and the serviceability you couldn't ask for better Absolutely. It is, it has been such a revelation playing with one. I, I've known about them for a few years now. I've, I've been reading about them because I've been looking for a precision drill press for a bunch of years. And there are, you know, there are less expensive ones out there. There are significantly more expensive ones that are out there. I've been sort of living with using my hardened mill as an, as an advanced drill press. But the big problem with that is that when you get into tiny holes, you really need to get the drill bit going at a at a high RPM, and my hardens just can't do that. It's not, you know, it's not designed for that. It's it's designed to get up to about three thousand RPM, and that's and that's where it tops out. With some of these small drills that we're using, you really need to be pushing them beyond ten thousand RPM, and so a precision drill press like this is is really beneficial. Um, fortunately, as a, as I mentioned on a on a previous episode. Uh, one of the the local tool guys that I know who also, you know, has a lot of watchmaking tools and everything. He had this Cameron drill press that he was willing to loan us for for a couple of weeks. 
so that I could get a chance to actually play with one and see, is this something that I want to invest my money in? And after a single afternoon with this drill press, I immediately started looking out for one and buying one. And so I ended up buying a used one off of eBay. And one of the reasons why I was happy to buy it off of eBay used was that it it is so easy to service these. Cameron themselves are happy to sell you the parts to refurbish any of their drill presses, whether it's in in current production or not, because so much of it is, has really not changed. The critical things haven't changed over the years. So the the spindles that they're making, you know, they're you can just drop them into any of their drill presses they've made since the 60s, as far as I know, and the current spindles work just fine. Um, you know, all of these things, you want to get a variable speed controller for the motor, like the, the one that I bought from, from eBay doesn't have the variable speed controller with it. I can just order that from Cameron, and they're happy to ship that up to me. So I've been very, very pleased with it. When I posted that on on Instagram, within a few hours, I had several people who had met, who had commented on that Instagram post talking about how they own several Camerons and they would never buy anything else. So that, that Cameron drill press has really been a revelation for me. Yeah, what really sold me on it was, was seeing how much more accurately it drilled the holes than... <laughs> Drilling them on on your lathe yeah. using that that centering tool using the the wobble stick. The wobble stick is great. The wobble stick's yeah. not the issue. It it was the offset of the drill. Yeah. So the that I, something that I need to address on my my Derbyshire lathe is that I think that the tailstock is out ever so slightly, and it's it's off it's offset ever so slightly. So I think I need to address that, and I think that's one of the reasons mm-hmm. why we're having problems. But when when we drilled that one point one millimeter hole on the Derbyshire, we then took some we then took some gauge pins and put them into the hole and it was larger than what we you know what we had drilled and we expected that when we then drilled out the same kinds of holes in the exact same material using the Cameron and we had made some pins which we were going to reuse and we couldn't reuse them because we had made them for those larger holes that had come out on the Derbyshire they were just too big for the holes that we had drilled on the Cameron because when we used the the gauge pins, they were exactly one point one millimeter holes, and that was uh, that was truly impressive. When when you consider that the Derbyshire is no slouch in terms of being able to to drill precision holes, uh, but it was just you know the the setup of it is off a little bit. So also the the low RPMs on the the Derbyshire don't help when it comes to to uh, drilling out these holes. So I'm very very happy with the results that we're getting out of the the Cameron, mm. and I. I could not recommend these drills, these drill presses anywhere near enough. They're, they are just brilliant machines. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The only reason I was bringing up the wobble stick it was <laughs> not to, to point out that that was in any way the problem, but, but mm. rather that you couldn't have gotten the, the position that we wanted those holes to be in any more perfect mm-hmm. than we did using that wobble stick. They, they, were, they were dialed in oh, yeah. precisely. Yeah. And yet, the the holes were oversized, and and using the Cameron yeah. freehand, yes, we were able to get more accurate holes uh, out of that than, than with the Derbyshire. Well, that's that's the other thing is that because you're freehanding the the plate and you're putting it into position manually, and then setting you know getting the the drill press going and drilling, I was able to drill out two bridge plates in the time that it took you and me to drill out three holes on mm. one of them. You know, like we're talking, I think there was about 24 holes that I drilled out. And 
it took me very little time compared to the setup on the lathe where you're you have to set up each hole get the wobble stick you know set up and center and everything it it obviously it's the the way to go for ultimate precision of of where that hole is located but these are really close to where they need to be located uh, certainly close enough for for what we're doing and frankly the speed was just amazing it was so much faster to to work with mm-hmm. Yeah, for something like a, a, a jewel hole, I would still go the, mm. the wobble stick route. Mm-hmm. But for the pins and the screw holes, like mm-hmm. this, this was yeah. magnificent. And I think even with the with the jewel holes, it would be fine to do the initial drill out with the Cameron and then do your um, your ultimate precision centering on the lathe with the wobble stick, and then you bore them out to the proper size. And that way you've got the advantages of both worlds because you do need to do an initial drilling of that uh, that hole before you can go in there with a the boring bar. So I think that um, that it would probably be faster to just drill it out, you know, do that initial hole, that 1.1 millimeter hole, let's say, on the Cameron, and then center it up properly based on the other jewel that you're that you're referencing with the wobble stick on the lathe, and then you know bore it out to the right size, and that way you've got you're not worrying about the concentricity of the hole because of a drill bit. You're not worrying about if there's a little bit of you know. Uh, a little bit of run out on the drill bit or anything like that. That way you're getting it absolutely perfect because you're boring it through a, you know, through a boring bar. Mm. And again, all of these things, you know, where people are listening to us talk about this, all of these things are so much easier to show on video, which is why I want to be able to show this stuff off. To be fair as well, we're literally complaining about hundredths of a millimeter. Yeah, so. I know. I know. We're talking about <laughs> microns here, but still, it's, if you're, if we're going to do this, we might as well do it right. Yeah. But it is truly remarkable the the time savings and the mm-hmm. precision of, of the cameras. So I, yeah. I can't speak highly enough. Yeah, about them. Yeah, certainly if you're out there in the world and you're and you're looking at these, they come up on eBay regularly um, in good condition. I think there were two of them that were on eBay at the time that I bought mine, and uh, they do come up regularly. But honestly, even if you don't get one off of you know you don't get one used and you don't find a good deal on one, you can get them from Cameron for a very reasonable price. Like they're their setup is not uh, astronomically expensive. They're they're not like some of the other precision drill presses that are out there, where you're spending five six thousand dollars or more on a drill press. You know, for a sort of fifteen hundred dollars, you can get yourself a a very very precise drill press that you will be happy with. So one last note with respect to the studio that I'd, I'd love to to wrap the show up on is is a sign out front. <laughs> you guys, you you finally have a a sign. You're you're done masquerading as a, a tire change operation. Yeah, we we haven't had nearly as many people asking to have tires repaired as uh, as we did before we changed out the sign. <laughs> There's a, a really lovely article done up uh, about the sign there outside the studio recently that, that I, I quite enjoyed seeing, and I know a, a number of other people have. Not only enjoyed reading that article, hmm. but have truly enjoyed driving by the studio over the course of 2020. I think you and Rich have shone a light into the darkness of 2020, thanks to to the sign that you guys have out there. Yeah, what John is talking about is the, the tire center that was here before had had their sign with, you know, GCR up top, which was the name of the company, and then they had you know Firestone tires, you know, advertised or whatever. And then below that, they have that typical sign that you see where you can change out the letters on the sign manually and you can put up, you know, whatever wording you want and you've got four lines of text or whatever you can put up there. And uh, we decided 
that we wanted to start playing around with that and putting some stuff up. And I say we, I mean, really Rich is the the driving force behind this. He's the mad genius behind a lot of our signs. And while I certainly have input into it, he's he really is the the brains behind that. And it has really kept our sanity over the course of 2020, being able to put up weird and wonderful sayings on the side of one of the busiest roads in Ottawa. Oh, some of them are things that everybody will appreciate and, you know, it will be, you know, be able to, to sort of understand the references for. Some of them are inside jokes. Some of them are so completely obscure that nobody else will ever get them. But it makes people think when they drive by and they, you know, makes people laugh. And we've gotten stories, for, as I said, this, you know, apartment 613 uh, story that, that was done on um, on Rich and what he's doing here. Uh, talked a lot about the signs and that's what the, the author was originally attracted to was the signs that, that we we're putting up. You know, there are people who who've certainly enjoyed what we're doing with them and, and trying to figure out what exactly it is that we're talking about sometimes and, and what's going on or just having a good laugh. And your, your sign wasn't even lit all year, but it is lit up nice and, and bright now. You've got some, yep. some new bulbs in there, some new wiring yeah. run. You've got the brand new signage all done there and it is shining like a, a true beacon. But even before it was physically lit up, mm-hmm. uh, I think the two of you really did uh, light up a lot of lives over the, this course of the, these past twelve months. Yeah, it's 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 been fun to do. And if you're if you're interested in following along, I mean, obviously you can come to Ottawa and you can drive down Carling Avenue and you'll see our sign as you drive by. But for those of you who it's you know it's obviously not practical for you to drive by our studio on a weekly basis in Ottawa to to see what we put up. If you follow Low and Dot Design, Rich's Instagram account. Uh, he does put up photos of the latest sign whenever uh, whenever it goes up, and you can comment on that and and see what's going on. and And you know, hopefully, you'll get most of the references. Sometimes you won't. Actually, I guarantee you that you won't. A lot of times, <laughs> some of them are truly bizarre. There have been a few where I've looked at Rich and go, "What the hell are you doing? What are you talking about?" But yeah, it's uh, it's a lot of fun, and it's it's sort of funny because you know when we when we were looking at this space originally. We looked at each other and we're like, how ridiculous would it be to be able to just post whatever we want on the side of a road? Because everybody who puts up a sign on the side of a road, it's like, oh, you know, here, you know, get your your eyebrows waxed or get your tires changed or here's the latest special on our menu. And this has nothing to do with that. We're not trying to sell you anything. We're just trying to make you think. Bring a little extra joy into the world. Yes, exactly. I know for a fact that uh, that sign is... You know, lit a smile up on my face on, on more than one occasion and, and sparked a bit of joy in my own life. So thank you both for that. Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter at Off Hours. John can be found on Twitter at Under the Loop, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Silver underscore hand.